hear the word of the Lord. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah, as a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. My name is Joan. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Uh, real quick, this is our last Sunday in the James series. Uh, thanks be to God for the book of James. It's been messing me up. Hope y'all have been found it. I was going to say enjoyable, but it probably hasn't been. Maybe helpful, uh, maybe encouraging. Uh, this will be the last week that we have resources about the book of James at the book table. Uh, there's some at the welcome table right now. This is one of those texts where we're not going to talk about everything that's in it. And so if you want to know more about it, it's a fascinating text and there's plenty of resources out there to go grab. Uh, next week, see if this works, we're starting a series on the five identities. Uh, this is kind of old school sojourn that have fallen by the wayside a little bit. Uh, this is intended to be a follow-up to our core values that we talked about uh, back in the end of the spring. And so this is kind of how who we are finds expression. Uh, we're looking at five different identities of who God makes us and how we live into that for the sake of our own transformation, to play the part he's made us to play in the church and in our lives everywhere we go. So that's starting next week. And it's, there's going to be a little bit of crowd participation in that. In your bulletin, you'll see this trifold we printed out for you called your personal renewal plan. And this is intended to be a tool to help you diagnose kind of where you're at, uh, where maybe some of your strengths, where some of your weaknesses. Uh, we're not saying with each one of these five identities, we're not saying some of you will be worshipers and some of you will be witnesses. So figure out, it's not like a spiritual gift assessment where it's like, hey, this is what you're good at, so just go do that. We're saying that to be made in the image of Christ, to live into that, all five of these things will take place in our life. We will be these things. We are these things and we're becoming these things. And so we want to see where do we maybe naturally gravitate? Where are we not spending time in places that we should? So maybe you really like reading books and you like reading about evangelism, but you never share the gospel with somebody. Or you really like serving people, but you have a hard time coming to church on a Sunday and, and giving expression to your worship. Those are things that are out of balance. So we, we want you to take this and it's just self-diagnostic stuff uh, that will let you know maybe where are you falling short. And I think we have kind of what it looks like. Yeah, there's the, the, it's not a pentagram, okay? We have lots of tools we use that have drawings that look kind of pentagram-ish. So you'll end up with somewhere your circle will be lopsided, right? You'll give yourself scores and then you'll draw a circle and some of it will be out of balance and you'll see like a tire, where are you out of round? And then there's some next steps of like, what would it look like for me to take some next steps in this? The, that how we grow wall out there, the stuff with all of the info on it is intended to give you pathways to grow in each one of those identities. So if you find yourself way out around, 
You can look forward to that sermon, whichever one of the identities it is, or just go right to the How We Grow wall and find some next steps for you. Uh, One other thing with that that will be really helpful for the pastors and staff as we're trying to lead our church forward is every week, and you can sign up for this if you haven't, we send out a newsletter that tries to be helpful. It gives things like there's calendar events, there's announcements, there's events in the community, giving reports. And this week, there'll be an anonymous survey in there. So don't worry, no one's outed, where we're going to ask you to report your scores on the personal renewal plan. So to see like everyone in our church, where 80% of our church really tends to gravitate this way, but there's huge imbalance in other places. So it's anonymous. Uh, It just means that you have to fill this out before Wednesday when it goes out so that you can report it on Wednesday. That would be a huge help to us. Uh, And yeah, so next week, get ready, five identities. Here we go. And now we're at the end of the book of James, and it's been, at least for me, um, it's been a great exploration in a faith that works. And and so we've tried to play on two, uh, or uh, play on words here a little bit, where faith will work. Like there is no such thing as this isolated faith that that doesn't show up in our life. But also the, the promise of the Christian faith is that this faith actually works. Life goes well when you follow the principles and the design of life for God. That doesn't mean it'll be easy, uh, but it'll mean like when life goes hard, you'll have the tools equipped to handle that, or you'll be sustained through that. So it's a faith that works. And in these uh, last verses, he gives us kind of summary encouragements that I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks now. I, I really think that these two encouragements are kind of safeguards to make sure all of the rest happens. So if, if we forget everything else that the book of James has talked about, but remember these last two encouragements or these tools that he gives to us, I think the rest of it will fall into place. These practices will lead us to follow everything else that he said. Uh, but these a little important disclaimer. I did a disclaimer last week. I'm going to do a disclaimer this week. Uh, these tools, get, some of you are going to be real happy about this. These tools are the lightsabers of Christianity. Y'all know what lightsabers are, right? Does anyone not know what a lightsaber is? There'll be prayer after the service, right? Like, so lightsabers are laser swords, right? Did you need to say more than that? Uh, and they were you. Who got to use lightsabers? The Jedi, right? The Jedi Knight. And you ever wonder, it's, not, it's obvious to us why you need magic powers to use a lightsaber, right? Because they'll cut your arm off or they'll like randomly slice through your car door or something. Like they are incredibly dangerous. So you need basically superpowers to use it without really hurting yourself or hurting somebody else. They were designed to be tools for peacekeeping, to keep, which the Jedi did for about 2,000 or 3,000 years, something like that. There's debates. I know how effective were the Jedi. Y'all saw episode eight and episode seven, whatever. Like, that's one of my problems with those side notes. I shouldn't have used a Star Wars illustration. This whole idea that someone can use a lightsaber without getting trained, I just don't buy it at all. It's a big plot hole in those last two movies, which I'm not like anti-Ray. I'm all pro-Ray, but really, she can use a lightsaber with, like, without any training? You'd kill somebody. Um, so any, anyway, uh, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, tangent. That's the word I was looking for. And then you get people like the Sith, the bad guys, who use lightsabers to do incredible harm and incredible destruction, which is the case with these tools in the church. Like they have incredible power, um, dangerous power. They've really, really hurt people. There's people right now who would be at church, but someone at some point used one of these tools, deeply wounded them. Maybe you come in this morning and you're here and you haven't been to church in a long time. You're skeptical of Christians. You carry a lot of baggage and a lot of wounding. I would guess it's, it's somewhere around 
the use of these tools, put in a careless, untrained hand, it's quite dangerous. Uh, so these tools are, I would say, both terrific and terrifying. Uh, they have incredible power for healing and restoration, but also incredible potential for harm. So if you're a Christian, God has given you a spiritual lightsaber, and he's filled you with magic powers, right? He's given you his indwelling Holy Spirit, which Jesus says will lead us into all truth. So we have a lightsaber, and we have everything that we need to use it well. So what are the tools? Oh, maybe it didn't make it up. Thought we had a slide. Come on, Bobby Gillis. How about a hand for Bobby Gillis, ladies and gentlemen? Where is he? He's not here. That's all right. That's what I get for making last-minute changes. Uh, the first tool is exposing sin. So that's, that's the two-sided coin of confessing sin to somebody, but also confronting sin in somebody else. So exposing sin. The second tool is restoring relationships. That's forgiveness and reconciliation. So the, the tools that James is entrusting us here is exposing of sin and the restoring of relationships. I really want to be practical and simple this morning. So we're going to say, why are these tools important and how do we wield them with wisdom. So verse 16, first tool, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Why do we need these tools? Well, because people sin, people hurt one another, right? Confess your sins, share your sins, and then pray for each other so that you may be healed. Uh, it's important to remember as we think about this and in our context that James was a pastor in Jerusalem. Uh, which was probably the most conservative religious city in the whole world at the time, at least, not, at least one of, if not the most conservative, most religious cities in the world. It's the kind of place where everybody has a church story, right? Like everybody grew up going to temple or worshiping in one of the, the Roman deals, or they were one of these new early Christians. Like, almost everybody would have had some kind of religious story. And when you're around religious people, most of the time they see themselves as the good people, right? So the problems are out there with those people or with that religion. And I think in a lot of ways, it's just like New Albany, Indiana, where I've never met someone who's like, church, what is this that you speak of, right? Like everybody has an idea of what church is. I've yet to meet somebody who's been in New Albany their whole life that is like, I'm an atheist, I hate Jesus and the church, and I'm not a Christian, right? Like I'm sure they live somewhere, but in my experience, everybody in New Albany is a Christian. Everybody uh, is a good person. I hear that all the time. Like I don't go to church all the time or I don't do this, but I'm a good person, uh, the bad people are always over there or out there or somewhere else. It's, it's never us. It's never in here. So the good people are here. The bad people are out there. And when this kind of culture takes root, where everyone is just a Christian, everyone is religious, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I'm from Indiana, and I grew up going to church, and I went to confirmation, or I went to, you know, I was baptized in the Catholic church. When's the last time you went to church? 30 years ago. When's the last time you read the Bible? I don't read the Bible. Why are you a Christian? Well, I got baptized in the Catholic, you know what I mean? That kind of idea takes root. Then this culture develops where all of the problems are out there, all of the bad people are out there, and thanks be to God, we are the good people. This kind of culture which I think is at root here. I think there's probably a lot of you who identify as a Christian. You know the United States self-identifies 70% as Christian. And there's just no way that's true because I think our society would look vastly different if 70% of the people in our country had a, an intimate relationship with Jesus. When that kind of culture takes root, we've forgotten both the gospel and who we are. 
We've forgotten what the gospel says to us and who we are in the eyes of God. We, maybe more simple to say is we've forgotten the fundamental prerequisite for Christian life, which is neediness, which is an awareness that we are broken and we need help. So why do we need tools of exposing sin and reconciling? Well, on the one hand, we forget who we are. We forget that before the gospel announces anything positive, it announces something negative, right? It's an indictment. You're so broken that God had to come and rescue you. Like you are dead in your trespasses. Not like you're really struggling along and dad's gonna come give you a booster shot. It first comes as an indictment. And so we we need this to remind one another of, of who we are, that we're a broken, needy people. But at the same time, a church that's not exposing sin and is not forgiving and reconciling uh, is no longer vital to its community. Okay, so there's on the one hand, Christians will be exposing sin to one another, but if people from the outside are hearing about Jesus, if we're living as witnesses to people outside of the church and they're exposed to the gospel and they come to Jesus, people will come to the church who don't know what it means to be a Christian. And they will do things that we are not meant to do as human beings. And they just won't know the difference. I did a member interview with one time with a guy who would, you maybe have heard me tell the story, um, for 15 years, he was living life where he was just going to strip clubs and sleeping with prostitutes. It was just like a normal three or four time week rhythm. And then he went to prison. And then in prison, he became a Christian. And now he's doing a member interview. And I was like, man, how are you handling that old lifestyle? He's like, it's, it's wonderful. Every time I think about calling a prostitute, I just look at pornography instead. And now I haven't been with a prostitute. And three years. And then I had to open up the word to him and show him what Jesus said about lust, what Jesus said about, you know, the things rolling around in your heart. He just didn't know. And so those things will be happening as people come to Christ and come to our church. We, there, we, we never rejoice because somebody sinned, but we should be encouraged when people are coming and stumbling through their faith, right? Like it shows a, a desire for godliness. It shows, we, we should desire to have baby Christians in our midst, people who don't know the rhythms of the Christian life. So if, if, you, if you find a church that's dying, you will find a church that is not exposing sin. I almost guarantee it. A church that isn't taking it seriously or is just like, do whatever you want, it's okay, we're all loved by God, and just like throws it all out. Find a church that's dying and you'll find a church that is not exposing sin. You'll find a church that's not extending forgiveness and reconciliation. Because I notice a lot of these churches where everything goes, unless you think everything doesn't go, and then you can't be in that place. You know, they become just as divisive and hostile as the kind of fundy churches that they're railing against. So a church that's dying is a church that almost always is not exposing sin, is not extending forgiveness and reconciliation, or is not doing both. So on the front end of this, the, the question as we're wrestling with these tools that, that we need to be asking is, uh, is your view of God big enough that it goes past who is in and who is out? Most of the Christianity in Southern Indiana is basically asking, are people going to heaven or are they going to hell? And so if I can convince you to say this, the magic incantation that gets you to go to heaven instead of going to hell, we'll move on to the next person. Is your view of salvation, does it go beyond heaven or hell? Does your view of God go beyond getting people to be quote unquote saved and into the heart of the gospel? which is the healing and the transformation of souls. On the other hand, do you want to be a church that's vital to its community? Like, do you want to be a church where New Albany would feel the loss if this church 
closed, where lost people don't feel rejected here, but they see their place amongst a broken people. Like, do you want to be a part of a church where the expectation is we're all growing? Like, we are all committed. Stuff like the personal renewal plan, like the pastors can't micromanage that. If you're coming here expecting the pastors to like, I don't know, feed you so that you can grow, that will not work. We will be a pathetic church. It's your responsibility to feed your own soul. Do you want to be a church where the expectation is we're all growing, we're all being transformed? That's what these tools provide. That's why we need them. We want to be a vital church, a people becoming our true selves in Christ. So how do we use them? I've, I've never heard someone say, you know, I think this year I really work on becoming stagnant in my faith, so I'll never confess sin or confront people in their sin. Right? It's, never that, it's never that obvious. I would really like to be a part of bringing about the slow decline of this church, so I'm going to abandon these tools. It, it never happens that consciously. There's this slow drift. I've never heard a church say at like an elder meeting or some big pastor conference, like our 2020 vision statement is to lose all vitality in the community and slowly die, right? Like that's, that's never been someone's intention or their vision strategy, but there's a subtle denial of the gospel that keeps us from embracing these. And I think it's the lie of self-preservation. Um, there's so much of Southern Indiana culture is this mask we put on trying to look good and make sure everything just stays the same. We don't confess sin because we think we'll be rejected in our sin. Have you ever felt that twinge in, in your gut that you, you really feel like you need to say that to your wife, to confess something or acknowledge something or to a friend, but then you think about the consequences of what will happen. How are they going to respond? And you decide, I'm going to pray about it, right? I'm just going to pray about it. And you pray about it for three, four, five days long enough to forget about it and not do anything about it. Maybe it's the flip. You don't expose in other people's lives because you think you'll lose the relationship. So you hunker down and hide. And we all just pretend everything is going to be okay. Using these tools well will require each of us to commit to our own personal transformation, um, to desire more than heaven. What do you mean desire more than heaven? To desire, know, to desire to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, right? To be transformed into his likeness, to become like him. So I, I want to talk about the who, when, and how of confrontation and reconciliation. I get calls all the time. I don't know about all the time. Regularly. What's the difference? Uh, so-and-so, it goes like this. I get a phone call from a number I don't have on my phone, and I'll be like, hello. And they'll say, hey, I just want you to know that so-and-so did such and such, and I really think you should go talk to them. I was at community group last week, and so-and-so said this, and I'm really concerned about it, and I think you should go talk to them. In other words, I think I smelled some sin out, Pastor, and as the pastor, I think you should go talk to them about it. I didn't grow up going to church not very regularly, a couple times a year, which means I, didn't, I don't really have any church baggage. All of my church baggage is because of you people, okay? So enjoy that. And um, I didn't, I just never thought of pastors as like the CEO of the church who do, ever, or like the shopkeeper, the manager at Walmart, where if the, if, the, if the issue at the store gets bad enough, you call the manager and make him fix it for you. But that's like, 
I think a lot of us look at the pastors as the people who are going to micromanage our faith. So we see somebody who sins, call the pastor, so they, we pay them to go have the hard conversation that I'm not supposed to have, right? Here's what James says in verse 19. He says, if one of you should wander from the truth, then someone should bring him back. That's just a little pause right there. If one of you should wander, and who brings him back? So say the word with me. Now, someone say it. Someone. 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 Could that someone include a pastor? It does include a pastor. Is it specifically a pastor? No. Earlier in James 5, he gives a very specific case where if this is going on, call the pastors. If you're sick, if your body is sick, call the pastors and they will come and pray for you that you might be healed. It's a very specific situation. Now he says, here, if someone is sinning, who should bring him back? Well, someone, right? Someone, you people, you Christians, one of you people in the church. Confession and confrontation are the responsibility of every Christian, a period. If you have the audacity to claim that you're a Christian, this is expected of you. In this church, this is expected of you. Confront, confess, expose sin. And listen to me now. Confession and confrontation are the normal rhythms of Christian friendship and Christian relationship. They are the normal rhythms. If you have friends and you are not confessing sin or having your sin exposed, they're either not your friends or you are not Christians, all right? Like, this is normal. This is how healthy Christian relationships need to work. Uh, it's, it's implied back in verse 16, this bit about friendship and relationship, it just doesn't import to English very well. Um, I don't think I put it up there. When it said confess your sins back in verse 16, confess your sins to each other, real quick notice it says to each other. It's a to each other. It doesn't say confess your sins to God, where a lot of us I think are like, well, I did this thing, but I said it to God, so I'm good. James says confess your sin to each other. There's an assumption you've already confessed to God. Now go confess to each other. And this word confess, the most literal translation means agree with. It means to agree with. In some places, that word will get translated rejoice. So here's what's happening. I'll give you a day in the life of one of my friendships. I've got a friend I've been friends with for 20 years, Pastor Kevin over at Sojourn. He loves Adam. He can listen to the podcast. And this happens regularly. He'll call me and be like, bro, uh, you really stuck your foot in it there. That was whatever. You messed up. Shouldn't have done that. Happens at least once a month, I would say. You messed up. You shouldn't have done that. And my response is usually something like, you're an idiot. You don't know me. You, you, get out of my face, man. Leave me alone. I'm not coming over this week, right? Like, what are you talking about? This guy's known me for 20 years. He's my oldest friend. And then I, I go away. You're driving along in the, you know, that the question rings in your head. You start sitting with it and you're like, I think he's right. <laughs> you know, maybe you got to sleep on it to let the anger cool down. You're like, I, th- I, th- I think he's right. I, I get in a fuss when he calls me and then I get in a fuss because I realize he's right. So what do I do? I go back and agree with him, right? You were right. You called this out on me and I'm coming to you to say you are right. I was wrong. That's the kind of confession James is talking about. He's not saying everything you've ever done, go to community group and dump it on everybody. Like all of your private sins between you and the Lord, your jealousy, right? Where you're discontent over what God's given you, your envy, like that, confess that to the Lord. He's saying the ways you've sinned against one another, come and bring that to one another. Agree with one another. Return to someone you've sinned against and agree with them. The, the who of 
confrontation and confession is everyone, okay? It's an agreement. It's about relationship. Each of us needs to expect and accept this exposure. And this is all over the Bible, okay? Here's one verse from Proverbs. People who accept discipline are on the pathway to life, but those who ignore correction will go astray. If you're the person who always gets in a fuss, or you're surrounded by people for the last decade who've given you bad advice, right? You've asked 10 people, they all said the same thing, you're like, I'm surrounded by idiots. Your life will go astray, right? Receive correction, expect it and accept it. Embrace it as a, as a gift that will lead to life. This is, again, normal and the healthy rhythm of life together. So again, these are lightsabers we're dealing with and it can get dangerous. Uh, this is not an active sin hunt. This isn't everyone getting a license to become a private investigator and find everything wrong. That's with everybody. So the question becomes when. If the who is every Christian, when? Are we just supposed to be a, a culture on eggshells peeking around at everybody and say, well, correction leads to life, so we're going to find every little thing to correct and just pick and poke at everybody. Here's what we're told in, in verse 19. Let's look at it again. There we go. Where are we? I don't know what's happening here. We're all over the place. You might have to go old school and just open up your Bible. I don't know why this is happening so fast. There we is. There we is. I talk for a living. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back. That, that's the, the little the caveat here. The key, the key word when we're dealing with when here is this, where is it? Laser pointer time. Wander, right? Wander. Uh, this, this word is getting to a person's pattern of being. Um, it, it's talking more about a bad year than a bad night. Y'all know the difference between a bad night and a bad year? Some, someone does something stupid, like, yeah, someone does something stupid at your house and you know they know it was stupid, right? Versus someone comes to your house twice a month and they do something stupid, that same stupid thing, every time they're over for a year. But this, the idea of this wandering here is talking about a habit of life, a, a pattern of departing from the truth of God's word. So when do you confront? when you see someone is habitually departing from the truth. It's like it's their way of being, right? It's, it's the normal pattern that they're doing these things, whether it's like lying or drinking or stealing or yelling at their wife or whatever it might be. So when someone is habitually departing from the truth, you personally go and confront them. So please, like, if you need to call your community group leader or pastor to like work through how do I do this, I guess that's okay. But just know you have permission. If someone sins against you, go talk to that person before you go and start talking to everyone else. As, like some sins will be egregious enough and painful enough that you confront right away and you say something right away. But most often we confront when we see a longstanding pattern of rejecting God's design for life. So who? Every Christian. When? When we see wandering, a pattern of departing from God's design for life. And and this will require a closeness to other people relationally, right? Like they have to be able to see how you behave over time. This requires us to pay attention to one another, to have genuine love for each other. And this gets to the real heart of the matter, the big why of how we do this. Confess your sin to God, yes, but then also to the other person you've sinned against, yes. Pray for each other, yes. Why? So that you may be healed. 
so that you may be healed. And isn't it interesting that he's talking about healing here after he's already talked about physical healing earlier in chapter 5. You just go a few verses up and you'll see if you're physically ill, the pastors will come and pray for your healing. And now he's saying if you've sinned against one another, agree with one another on that, confess your sins to each other and pray that you may be healed. See, this broadens our understanding of sin. It's not just a moral issue, right? Are you in trouble or out of trouble? Does do more weights go on the guilty scale or the innocent scale here? Uh, it, it frames it now as a relational issue. Have you ever noticed the primary consequences of the fall are relational? It's, it affects relationships. You see, Adam and Eve get screwy with one another. They start blame shifting. They start hiding. One of their kids kills their other kid, right? Like relationships break down and get difficult. One of the the curses, has to deal with the relationship between a husband and a wife. And then they're removed from the place of God. So fundamentally, the consequences of the fall deal with relationships. So the goal of confession and confrontation is healing the relationship. It's not beating somebody up. It's, it's not claiming moral high ground. It's healing the relationship. So I want to give you some practical tips on this. Hopefully, who does it? All Christians confront and reconcile? When do we do it? When we see a pattern of sin. Why? So that we might be healed and that relationships might be healed. So here's some practical tips for you, and we'll, we'll wrap up. So first, confront with love or use your lightsaber gently. Um, there, there must be a sobriety and a gravity when we do this. A sobriety and a gravity when we do this. Look at the stakes. Verse 20, you can be sure whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins, right? Like life and death is in the balance here. When you see someone in a pattern of habitual sin, they're killing themselves slowly and they're killing their relationships. They're searing their own conscience. Someone who's comfortable with a consistent habitual sin, it's, it's not like the other sins get more difficult to commit, right? The, the more this is taking root in their life, the more they will continue to drift. When you're hunting from hunting for sin, you know, just trying to look for it, it's usually the same self-preservation that keeps you from exposing your own sin. If I destroy you, I'll feel better about me. And, and that's just not what biblical exposure of sin is about. Biblical confrontation is grounded in love and in hope. Your words, your actions, your timing, it, it must be motivated by love, by the hope of healing. So pro tip, do it privately, right? If someone has sinned against you, confront them privately. This is just a way of getting defenses down. Show them that you love them. Season your words with grace and love, filled with hope of healing. Check your own heart. Am I hoping to make somebody look bad in front of community groups so everyone will think that I'm looking so great? So we confront in hopes of bringing about life and healing. We confront one another with love. Two, this is harder, receive the wound right? Receive the wound. I've never heard of somebody who enjoyed being confronted or exposed, right? It, it hurts almost every time. But the word tells us that the wounds of a friend are like what? Somebody say it. Wounds of a friend are like, Gillis's? Oil on my head, that's right. <laughs> Better than the kisses of an enemy. That's another one. I was thinking of a different one. The Bible talks about it all over the place. The wounds of a friend are like oil on my head, which is a blessing, right? It's like being blessed, being cared for, being anointed. 
We receive wounds of love, see them as a blessing by owning our sin and surrendering the relationship. Here's what I mean. This is a lot of content here. Uh, Owning your sin is accepting responsibility for it. And here's what I see in our church all the time, the blame shifting. Uh, So someone comes and says, you did this to me. And you say, yeah, I did that to you, but it's because you did this, right? Like I wouldn't have raised my voice if you hadn't have said that. Uh, So I know that I did this thing, but if you think about it, it's really your fault. The other thing that I see us do all the time is people say, man, uh, you did this to me. And then they say, I'm so sorry I made you feel that way. You know that apology? It's, it's happening all the time publicly now. If anything I said or anything I did during the 30 years I was doing this made you feel like I didn't value women, I'm sorry. And that's like, that's just such a ridiculous non-apology. Owning it isn't saying, I'm sorry you feel hurt. It's saying, I'm sorry I hurt you, right? See the difference there? So own, own your sin. Don't blame what you did on them. Nobody makes you sin, right? That's on you. Don't blame shift and, and don't try to, I don't know how to say it, like use the words, but actually not say anything. If I made you feel this way, stop. Nope, nope, nope. That is not, that's not an apology. And then, so that's owning. And then you surrender by relinquishing demands you have on the relationship. So here's what this means. You repent, you ask for forgiveness, but you don't demand that the person let you back in. Sin does relational damage. And the person who's committed the sin doesn't get to demand the new terms of the relationship. There's a relinquishing there. I'm putting the ball in your court. True confession says, I know I've sinned against God. I know I've sinned against you and I want to fix this relationship, but I don't demand that you let me in. It'll happen in your time. This healing takes time and you must surrender and put the ball in the other person's court. What's yours to do is to at least create the grounds where it could happen. I've repented before the Lord. I repent before you. How can I make this right? And if the other person says you can't or not yet, you have to relinquish that responsibility. That's just not on you anymore. As the one who sinned, you you can't demand new terms of the relationship. Finally, rehearse the gospel. Anybody ever feel like you know the words of the gospel, but you don't feel the truth of the gospel? You know what I mean? Like you, you know the right things to say, but it doesn't feel true. Or you know that God loves you, but you don't feel loved. You know that God says you're safe, but you don't feel safe. One of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is that until the gospel is in our physical bodies, in our bones, in our ways of being, it's very hard to live like it's true. It's very hard to experience deep transformation. So we have the privilege in exposing sin and extending forgiveness of embodying the gospel in our relationships. Uh, The act of confessing and restoring relationships heals the soul, and it, it moves the gospel of Jesus away from being an abstract concept in our heads to deep experience of the soul. So listen, like you can't confess, own, surrender until you believe your sin has been exposed on the cross already. That like you're known, the, the, the jury is, is back in, the verdict is guilty. Like you're fully known by God, fully exposed by God, and at the same time, fully forgiven and loved by God. And the act of confession allows you to embody that promise that you are forgiven and you are safe. It, it's very difficult to confess your sin without having a moment of faith of saying, even if I confess the sin and it all goes sideways, I will be okay. 
And then you confess sin and whatever happens, happens. And you find that in your soul, you're okay. And you're like, maybe it is true, right? Like you see how that works? Like maybe it is true. And then in, in restoring somebody, eagerly extending forgiveness and healing the relationship, you experience God's love for you too. You take the pain of the sin and you choose forgiveness over vengeance. You see them as someone who's washed in the blood of Jesus, forgiven by God, embraced by God. And you learn in new ways how God has done that for you too. Because you'll do something hard. You'll extend forgiveness even when it's painful. And you realize how much infinitely more God did that for you. And you'll get a taste of his deep, incredible, passionate love for you. As we repeat this process over and over in our daily lives, we become a people who learn we really don't have to hide. Can you imagine that in your, in your life? Like if you really didn't feel like you had to hide so much, you weren't playing so much self-protection game, you weren't hedging your bets and, and measuring your words, trying to analyze and triangulate every conversation just for the sake of your own self-preservation. Our relationships are the place where the gospel becomes real to us, not just a concept, where the love of Jesus isn't just talked about, it's experienced. And I, be I believe in a supernatural sovereign God, right? But, but most often, the way that supernatural sovereign God moves his kingdom forward, most often the way he transforms people is through other people. So we get to be these incredible instruments of transformation, of reconciliation in the lives of other people. So in our relationships, we learn to rest in the gospel. We get to rehearse the gospel, and that allows us to experience the love of Christ. So these are terrifying tools, but they're also incredibly beautiful tools that will lead us on this journey of transformation and of becoming who we really are in Christ. And here's how we know that we can wield them well, that the jail doors are wide open and we've been set free. We, we come to the meal where Christ looked at his followers on the night he was betrayed and he, he took a loaf of bread, said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he lifted it up and he says, um, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your new relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. And I, I want you to take just a second here and think about Where's their, like, where's their hanging chad relationally in your life? Remember the hanging chads? Uh, wh where is that, that kind of unresolved note, that person that you kind of feel that tug, that you know things aren't finished with? What would you do if you believed this was true? That, that through the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you, that you are free, that you are forgiven, and that you are safe. You can be exposed. You can extend forgiveness. What would you do? And if you know what you do right now, I would say that's God's invitation to you, right? So trust him and obey. What would that mean? What would that look like? Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Uh, the wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then uh, Christians, let's come celebrate together. Let's pray.